And turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Over the last handful of Sunday nights, I've been preaching, uh, preaching from Philippians, um, really through the book, uh, verse by verse. This will be the final, uh, we'll wrap it up this evening in Philippians. But I've always heard, and myself, I've described the theme of Philippians as being about joy. That's what Philippians is about. And that is a recurring word in the book and a pretty major theme. Um, but I've come to see it not, not so much as the theme itself, but as a proper response to the theme. I believe the theme of Philippians is basically the cross. And by the cross, I mean not the physical object, but the voluntary renouncing of personal advantage and preferences and the willing and loving embrace of suffering for the eternal good of the other. That's what Jesus did on the cross renounced his rights, renounced his comfort for the good of someone else. That's what I mean by the cross. I really believe the center of the book is the great Christ hymn, it's sometimes called, of chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. Basically the summary of Jesus giving up his privileges of God, going lower and lower and lower, all the way down to the cross, and then from the lowest place imaginable, dying that humiliating death on a cross, he is then exalted to the right hand of God. There's a word used to describe this I've, uh, I've come across. I want to share it with you in hopes that maybe we enter it into our, uh, into our vocabulary, and that is the word cruciformity. Cruciformity is a word used in some scholarly circles. It just basically means conforming to the cross. Conforming to the cross. Cross-shaped. This is a letter about leading cruciform lives. Lives which look like the cross, which renounce personal advantage and preferences to serve greater ends. The ends of doing God's work, the ends of serving God's people. That's what Jesus did, and that's what those who have truly received the grace of God through Jesus Christ do. They conform themselves to that same way of thinking and living. The setting aside of self for the sake of God's work and for the sake of God's people. That's what it means to be cruciform. So what we have in chapter 4 is basically some practical advice for living that way. Paul tends to get practical uh, near the end of his letters to say, so what about these huge ideas I've been giving you? Here's what you can do, big ways and small ways. Five ways I have to live a cross-shaped, cruciform life. Number one, Paul says, be a co-worker and not a competitor. That's how you live a cruciform life. This is uh, Philippians 4 and verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now this is pretty remarkable for Paul uh, in that he rarely mentions troublemakers by name. Now he mentions troublemakers. You remember in the previous chapter he called those Judaizers some unflattering names. He called them dogs, evildoers, flesh mutilators. But he didn't call out their names specifically. But these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche, get named. Now, we don't know what their disagreement was over, but their names are immortalized in Scripture, basically because they couldn't get along. What this is, I think, is a specific example of what Paul was teaching generally in chapter 2, in the beginning of chapter 2. Remember what he said in chapter 2 and verse 1? If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Those are the verses he's calling these women to incorporate. 
Now, I like to imagine um, this, this letter being publicly read, as it almost certainly was, when it was received by Philippi. And, uh, and, and Epaphroditus might have been the guy who stood up and read it, the guy who delivered it. And I like to imagine the scene of, of, the, of the letter being read in church for the first time. And when he gets to these verses in chapter 2 about setting aside self and pride and getting along, I like to imagine both of these ladies at the same time nodding along and thinking to themselves, you know, Syntyche's thinking, I sure hope Euodia is listening to this. And I like to imagine Euodia saying, I sure hope Syntyche is listening to this. And then a couple of chapters later, he gets to these verses when they're named as not doing those verses, either of them, and the blood draining out of their faces. Now what Paul does here, notice, he doesn't rebuke them. What he does is more heartfelt than that. He doesn't suggest to them, though, he's stronger than that. What he does in in chapter 4 and verse 2 is entreat each of them, which means beg. I beg you. And notice, they both get an entreaty. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. Now, whatever their squabble was, I think we can be certain of a few things. We can be certain one of them probably started it. One of them got the ball rolling in their disagreement. I can be pretty sure that both had some valid gripe with the other. At some point, both of them had not done everything exactly perfectly correct, because that's just the way squabbles work, in my experience. I have a feeling both of them felt the grief, the, the, the grievance, uh, their grievances were more serious, that their gripes were more serious than the other person's. But Paul doesn't weigh their respective baggage and declare a winner in the dispute. Yodia, you're correct, Syntyche, you need to repent. That's not what he says. Instead, what he does is he recasts their roles in the church. He says, ladies, you're not competitors. You're co-workers. There is no winner and loser in the body of Christ. If we're not getting along, then we're all losers. In verse 3, what he does is he asks for an unnamed trusted companion to intervene in the squabble and to remind these ladies they're working for a common cause and to remind these ladies that supposedly they both have their names in the book of life. Because after all, isn't eternity going to be a little bit awkward? if we go into it with all these issues with the brethren who are supposedly going to be there with us. But I think Paul is doing something even more profound than just telling two people to get along. The phrase he uses in verse 2, agree in the Lord, is the literal exact same wording in Greek as what he said in chapter 2 and verse 2 with the phrase, have the same mind. They're the same words in Greek. Agree in the Lord. Have the same mind. What's happened here isn't just a personality clash. What's happened here is a failure to understand and internalize the mind of Christ. Because we are supposedly a community of people who've been bought by the blood of Christ. And we're supposed to commune each week around the cross, meditating all together in the Lord's Supper on the one who sacrificed himself for us. Which means for us, humility and self-sacrifice aren't just beneficial add-ons to what we do here. They're not just good traits we aspire to. They are absolutely central to who we are. The only reason we're together in the church is that Jesus humbled himself for our good. And so how silly, how hypocritical to act so counter to the cross in a cross-bought body. In verses 4 and 5, these these verses describe what people of the cross should be known for. Not the squabble of Euodia and Syntyche. Here's what we should be known for. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
You know, there are churches who are known for being cranky. There are cranky churches. They are known for having members that only ever want to complain about the elders, or they are known for having elders or preachers who only ever want to complain about the members, and they're always at each other's throats. There are churches that are known for that. There are some squabbles among brethren that are nearly as famous as Euodias and Syntyches. But Paul says here, shouldn't you be known, not, not as a church full of cranks who bicker and complain, shouldn't you be known as a church full of joyful and reasonable people? You know, doesn't the gospel, what does the gospel mean? Does the gospel mean good news or bad news? Shouldn't the people who had the good news have a little joy? Shouldn't you go into a church that has the gospel supposedly and say, yeah, these look like a people who all know the good news. We're going to be known by the world for something. And our reputation isn't what we think it should be. That's not how reputation works. It's what we have earned by what we have modeled. That's how reputation works. So the way we live, especially together as a community of believers, should adorn the gospel, should be a real-life expression of the message we preach. If we can't reconcile the competitive bickering in our own church, why should we expect the world to believe we're bringing them the gospel of reconciliation? The people of the cross should be living the way of the cross. That's Paul's point. Be a co-worker, he says, not a competitor. Which brings us to number two. When Paul encourages us, be a prayer not a worrier. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so here's another habit of cross-shaped people bringing all of life before God in prayer, especially here are anxieties. Now, notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say, don't be anxious about anything because you're big and tough enough to handle everything. Don't be anxious because your anxieties aren't real, because your anxieties actually aren't aren't that bad. That's not what he says. What we do with our anxieties is not tamp them down, not pretend like they're not real, not just put on a brave face and say, I can handle it. Instead, what he says is, you voice them to God. You vent them in prayer. At times, that might look like a psalm of lament where we simply tell God in our prayer how bad things are. What Paul is encouraging here is is not a stoicism about our anxieties. What he's encouraging here is a real honesty with God about our anxieties. Now, these verses are not a a quick prayer formula either that just make you feel better. Here's a magic prayer, Philippians 4, 6, pray this, you'll feel better. It's about the regular discipline of prayer which trains us to turn things over to God. You can't implement these verses sporadically. We can't say, I tried to pray Philippians 4, 6 and nothing happened. I guess that verse isn't true. This is about prayer becoming a constant recourse in anxieties. It's about developing a habit that trains us to rely on God. And what prepares us for eternity is not to have hard things removed from our lives, but to be equipped to handle hard things in our life. Did you notice in verses 6 and 7, nothing is removed. We have anxieties, we bring them before God, and there is no promise that the anxieties, the things we're anxious about, will be removed. There is no promise about that. The promise is not a a, a removal of something. The promise is an addition of something. The addition of patience, the addition of peace, the addition is a relationship with God that equips us to live well in anxious times. The peace of God, he says, is what is promised. And so cross-shaped living involves remembering this little line at the end of verse 5, which might better go with these verses, this reminder, 
the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near, which leads directly into praying to that Lord who is near. Knowing he's near, not far away, not disinterested, but near. Knowing he cares. Knowing his empathy for my suffering because he suffered too. I can bring my anxieties, my supplications, my requests to him. That is a peace-giving habit to cultivate. And it's exactly what Jesus did as he was going to the cross. Be a prayer, not simply a worrier. Number three, Paul encourages us to be a seeker and not a shunner. I have trouble with this, uh, the negative here, shunner. I'll try to explain myself as we go. This is verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I have always read these verses, especially verse 8, as basically an admonition uh, not to fill your head with trash. Uh, it's, a, it's an admonition, I had preached it before, about all the things we're not supposed to watch, all the things we're not supposed to read, the things we're not supposed to fill our head. I used to use it as, as a proof text for what we're not to think about. And clearly, if we were to embrace these good things, that excludes a lot of bad things. But Paul's not actually telling us to shun anything in verse 8, by implication perhaps. But what he's actually telling us to do is to seek out something. Seek out things. Find things to think about. Seek out things. He encourages us to seek out things, to seek out people, to seek out things in culture, to think, seek out anything which embodies virtue, heavenly virtue. Of course, that begins with the Bible. But I also think Paul's not saying that anything not in the Bible needs to be shunned either. Um, I'm told that the list of virtues in verse 8, what Paul is doing is basically adapting um, common Greco-Roman uh, moral virtues, moral, moral writings here. That this list in verse 8 would be perfectly at home in a, in, a Greek, in a Greek or Roman moral thinker. And there are some who say part of what Paul is encouraging his Philippian readers to do in verse 8 is to really embody, embody the best of that culture. Now, back in chapter 3 and verse 19, he exposed the worst bits of that culture, and there's a lot of that. There were people who worshipped at the altar of their own appetites and lust. There's plenty of that bad stuff in pagan culture. But there is also in cultures like that people who sought higher things. People who were seeking for God and, and caught glimpses of truth. There are things throughout the world, there are things in culture which turn out to be reflections of the God who made the world and we should be sensitive to those wherever they're found. So let me try to explain this, illustrate this with two examples. Two examples of what it looks like to be a seeker of these virtues wherever, wherever we look. First is a biblical example. Remember in the Areopagus, um, among the learned Greek philosophers, the learned pagans, Paul stands before them and he begins by quoting them from a poem that was originally about Zeus. And he said this, he quoted this part of their poem, in, in him we live and move and have our being. That was, a, that was a line originally about Zeus. In him we live and move and have our being. Now, to begin with, they've got the wrong God, don't they? It's not true in Zeus. We live and move and have our being. But what Paul seizes on is that it is a profound insight into the interconnectedness between man and the divine. In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. That is a great description of man's relationship to the true God. See, Paul is sensitive 
to the insights of Greek culture, the things they got right, the ways in which they were looking for truth. And when they found a little bit of it, he seized on it. And he pointed them to the true God. He connected them to that true God. does the same thing when he points out the altar to the unknown God. And he says, you know what, there's an there's a openness here to, to, more, to more truth, to more revelation, to other gods you don't know about. I'm going to tell you about a God you don't know about, and it turns out to be the only God there actually is. I'll give you a, a personal example. I think I've shared this one with you at some point before. Um, but I've shared with you, I, I really love the, the, uh, the book, uh, The Odyssey by Homer. Uh, and and, and Od- uh, at the beginning of The Odyssey, Odysseus is moored on an island at the beginning of that book. He's moored on an island with a nymph named Calypso. And he, and he had on that island what, what all lustful men could want, to put, it, uh, to put it delicately. And yet, to quote, Homer writes, the sweet days of his lifetime were running out in anguish over his exile, for long ago the nymph had ceased to please. Now, no one would ever accuse the pagans of having a biblical sexual ethic. No one would ever say that about them. They certainly didn't have that. But thoughtful pagans knew we were made for more than pleasure. That's what Homer is pointing out. That there is sort of a diminishing half-life to pleasure. That what was pleasurable to us gets a little less pleasurable over time. In the end, long ago, it says, the nymph had ceased to please. There are higher goods, Homer is saying, than gratifying our most immediate and basis desires. And when we indulge those, the pleasure of pleasure diminishes further and further and further. And for Odysseus, what he discovers is the higher good than the nymph, the higher good is home. Uh, as he says, the best thing in the world, he concludes, it's a, it, the best thing in the world is a strong house held in serenity where both man and wife agree. That's better. And this, I think, is a corrective many Christians need. We regard sin as, as wrong, uh, but we don't fully appreciate that doing the right thing isn't just right. It's ultimately a way of choosing a more substantial pleasure when we choose right. We're not just shunning pleasure and embracing you know, hardtack holiness. What we're actually doing when we do the right thing is embracing a more substantial pleasure. Sin isn't just breaking God's no-nos. Sin is a diminishing of life. Homer made a true, lovely, commendable observation about the good life. Of course, we don't stop by patting Homer on the back. We connect Homer to the true source of all true and lovely and commendable things. We need to tell the Athenians their poem better describes their relationship to to Yahweh than to Zeus. We need to tell Homer the reason home is better than a nymph is because God made marriage to address man's loneliness. I think that's what Paul is doing in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, he says, be sensitive to that which is good and true. And in verse 9, what he does is connects all those whatevers in verse 8 to his own teaching and, and example in the gospel. He says, don't just think about these true things either. Practice them. Do these true and good and commendable things. And so cross-shaped living involves seeking out, thinking about, living out, whatever reflects the God who made us. To be sensitive to echoes of God in this world, to any who might be searching to Him and stumble upon truth. Our job is to seize on those good things and connect them to the true source of all that is good and true and beautiful. Number four. Number four, Paul says, be a slave of Christ and not circumstances. So in verse 10, we return to one of the through lines of this letter. A big reason why it was penned was that Philippi had sent Paul a sum of money to help meet his needs while he's in prison. 
but for Paul, it's not as simple as saying, you sent the money, thanks a lot. Um, in their world, when money changed hands, there's all sorts of, of subtle relational political dynamics going on. When somebody gave someone else a significant amount of money, the giver would often be sort of a, a patron to the receiver, that even if it was a gift, it was understood in the ancient world there was a sort of debt that the receiver incurred. And while they might not be expected to give a gift totally equal in value to the one they'd given, it was understood to be something of an indebtedness still. And, and at times, at the worst, it was as if the giver now owned the receiver, and now you really owe me. You work for me now. This is why Paul doesn't accept money from Corinth, for example, because they're especially prone to this mindset. There are many traveling preachers and orators in that time who would walk around peddling philosophy, self-help teaching for money. Paul's always aware of these dynamics. Now, Philippi's attitude toward money and Paul's support uh, is much more healthy than Corinth's. And so Paul is happy to accept their gift and thank them. But even still here, he's careful not to let this exchange of money send the wrong impression. So, so what he does is he brings up this gift in verse 10. He'll return to it in verse 14. But just as soon as he brings up their gift of money, um, he wants to talk about not the money, first of all, but his disposition toward the money. You'll see what I'm talking about, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am, being, uh, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So understand, if you're in a Roman prison, uh, three hots and a cot is not the policy. You are not guaranteed any such thing. If there are going to be provisions for you in prison, food, warm clothes, reading material, it will be because someone from the outside took mercy on you, the prisoner. That's the sort of thing Philippi had been providing for Paul. And he is genuinely grateful, he says in verse 10. Their gift drastically improved his circumstances. But on that subject of improved circumstances, Paul feels the need to pause. I rejoiced at your provision. But, verse 11, my deepest joy doesn't depend on that provision. I wasn't sitting here fretting about the money, and as soon as I got the money, I breathed a sigh of relief, and I could be content finally. That's not the way it worked. Because I have been working on learning a different way of being where my circumstances do not dictate everything in my life. I have worked on being content whether or not I got the money from you. Now, interpreters here uh, hear another echo of Greek philosophy in what Paul says here, especially a group called the Stoics. And what they say is verse 12. Verse 12, ripped of, ripped of its context, is, is right up the Stoics' alley. This is exactly the kind of thing the Stoics would say. Um, the Stoics basically believed that the world was, was an immutable, unchangeable place. The world was what it was. You were never going to change the world or the way the world worked. The nature of things is fixed. There's no possibility of changing your faith. That's the fundamental belief of the Stoics. And so if that's the case, the best way to live is to, is to learn to put up with things the way they are. Learn to conform yourself and your expectations and your mood to the, to the way the world is. And so our, world, our word stoic really comes from that exactly. The stoic secret to life was 
We're not going to change the world. We're going to change ourselves. We're going to adapt ourselves to whatever the world throws at us. We're not going to get too high. We're not going to get too low. That's the Stoic mindset. Now, learning about the Stoics, what I realized is for a long time, I basically read these verses like a Stoic and sort of thought that's what Paul was saying. I took Paul as saying, you know, I've learned to be content, which means never too high, never too low, stiff upper lip. But that's Stoicism. That's not Christianity. I want you to notice Paul's secret is not resigning yourself to, well, this is life, nothing we can do about it, oh well. Paul's secret is not that. Paul's secret is to press Jesus into every circumstance of life. Paul's secret is to face abundance with thanksgiving to God, like in verse 10. He gets high, but in the direction of God. And his solution to need, to, 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 to lack his, his solution is prayer and supplication, like verse 6, and to bring that to God. And so Paul's not saying he's learned to be a stoic about his situation. He's learned, not learned to be unaffected by good or bad. That's not what he says. The secret, he says, is to learn to live in God's presence. The secret is, cast all your anxieties on God and celebrate with thanksgiving before God. That's the secret, Paul says. Not tamp down the joys, not buck up about the anxieties. That's stoicism. The secret is, bring it before God. That's the secret, he says. To be a slave of Christ and not our circumstances. Which brings us to number five. Fifth and finally, Paul encourages us to be a supporter and not a shirker. This is central to cross-shaped living. In in verse 14, he returns to that discussion of the gift, gift of money they sent him. Verse uh, 14. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble... And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul's Paul's no ingrate. He rejoiced when he received the gift, but not just because it helped him. He rejoices here because he knows what that gift means about their relationship. Verse 10, again, how it revived your concern for me, how it was a sign of that. Their, their money, in verse 14, was, was their way of sharing his trouble. That's what you did. You shared my trouble. They've deprived themselves of something they could have gotten for themselves with that money. They deprived themselves in order to send to Paul to uh, alleviate his deprivation. They said, let me absorb some of your need, Paul. We'll go without so you can go with. We can offload some of your suffering onto us, Paul. And he says, that's what you did. Paul loves that they did that for them, for him. In verse 15, Paul references their long history of generosity with them. Ever since Acts 16, um, they had partnered with Paul in a way no church, no other church has. They received his teaching. He received their financial help. He needed to do their work. But he says, even when I went to the next place and you were no longer receiving teaching from me, you continued giving in verse 16. And so the transactional danger where you give to us and we give to you, he says, you didn't even need that. I stopped giving to you and you kept giving to me. 
People don't part with their money unless they reckon something worthwhile is gained through giving it away. And Philippi's unique generosity is a sign of their conversion. They really believed in Paul's mission. That's what he's saying. They had a sense of the worldwide scale of his work. It's not just about us selfishly getting our money's worth from Paul. He's on a mission that's bigger than us. It's about God's kingdom expanding. That's what they wanted to support. And the joy Paul feels about their gift isn't mainly about his own provision, though he says, you've seen to that, you've seen to that generously in verse 18. But Paul says, I'm excited because the money is tangible proof that you understand. The, the, uh, the money is a sign. They've begun to have the mind of Christ. They're not only looking to their own interest, they're also looking to the interest of others. And Paul, at the end of verse 18, Paul pictures their financial gift in terms of the temple and sacrifice, the pleasing aroma of a good sacrifice, which is a good credit to their faith. And then to call back to our our lesson last Sunday night, this is also another example of our paradox, where the way to gain is not to grasp, but to give up. Verse 19 says, The way to assure your needs are met is not through hoarding every penny for yourself. The way to assure your needs are met is to generously let go and give, which means God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The way to have enough is to give what you have away, not to hoard what you have. Another one of those paradoxical things. Well, let's close out with the last few verses. We might as well if we're going to study through the book. Verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. One of the strengths of Philippi, I think, is is that they understood what what the the church universal was. That they're part of of something that is much bigger than Philippi. They supported Paul even after he left Philippi because they believed in his mission. And they believed it was a global mission. Verse 21 begins to reference that brotherhood they have with other people, even though they're not with them, even though they might not have met them all. Which includes, by the way, verse 22, saints which were in Caesar's own household. Now, in, in every place where there was a Roman garrison, there would have been a Caesar household. So that any time Caesar visited one of these places in his empire, uh, in, in one of his colonies, he would, he would have a place to stay. And so wherever Paul is in prison here, some people say Rome, some people say Ephesus, but wherever Paul is in prison here, he tantalizingly references that there are brethren who are of Caesar's household, which either means servants of Caesar or family members of Caesar. What he, what he says to them subtly here at the end of the book is that God's people are all over even under Caesar's own nose. And your gift, Philippi, has helped minister even to them. So at the center of Philippians, I believe, is the cross. The cross is the place where Jesus forsakes the privileges of divinity in favor of shame and humiliation and torture. He did it to accomplish God's work. He did it to save God's people. Those are greater goods than getting what he deserved at the time. And in Philippians 4, Paul says that pattern of life is to be followed by Jesus' people in all ways, big and small, in church squabbles, in hardship, in prayer, in giving money. Every bit of the disciples' life should seek to follow this cross-shaped, cruciform pattern. 
so the question we leave with is, is that the way your life conforms? Does it conform to the shape of the cross? The way of giving up our privileges, giving up what we think we're entitled to in favor of a greater good than getting what we want all the time. The greater good of God's work, of God's church, of God's people. That's what it means to live cruciformly. And I pray that's what this church will always be about. If there's anyone that needs to respond to the invitation, come forward now as we stand and sing. Thank you.